Our scripture passage this morning comes from Mark chapter uh, 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to read together verses 14 through 29. In the NIV, this passage of scripture is, getting the head, is given the heading, John the Baptist beheaded, and that's what we're going to read about uh, together this morning. So Mark 6, verses 14 through 29, if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1561. And uh, why, don't we, why don't we stand again uh, for the reading of God's Word together this morning. Hear God's Word read for you now. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful... For you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl girl hurried in to the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. As far as the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Before we go to the exposition of God's word, though, I ask that you join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to study your word. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we study it together, that you would bless me, that you would help me to recall the things I've studied, that you would help me to put them together to speak clearly, that you would be with each of us as we listen, that you would keep our minds from the many distractions that so often plague us in times like these. Lord, above all, we pray that you would glorify uh, our risen Savior and that you would help us to love him more and to be um, inspired to serve him more faithfully in the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I, remember, uh, I remember chuckling to myself the first time I heard the phrase, Markin Sandwich, Markin Sandwich. I was, in a, I was in a New Testament class at Calvin Seminary, 
and it was a term that was used by our professor, Dr. Dr. Dean Deppie. Uh, and what this term describes is a literary technique or a, or a writing technique used by Mark in his gospel in which he, in which he sandwiches a story in the middle of another story. So, so if, you read through, if you read through Mark, you'll see this from time to time. You'll see him begin a story and then move to another story before returning to the completion of the first story. He inserts a story within a story. We actually just saw this a few weeks ago uh, in the last part of Mark chapter 5. A man named Jairus comes up to Jesus and pleads with Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. Uh, Jesus sets out with Jairus, but the story is interrupted by the story of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she sneaks up behind Jesus while he's on his way to Jairus' house, and she touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed, and Jesus feels that power has gone out of him, you remember, and he stops, and he, he deals with this, this woman, and that story about the woman is brought to a completion before Mark returns uh, to the story of Jairus and his daughter. So there's a story sandwiched within a story, and Mark does this from time to time in his gospel, and he does it for a reason. He does it to make a point. We see another example of that in our text this morning. Our text this morning is what we might call the meat on a Markin sandwich. Uh, In the text before ours, right, the, the verses before ours, we looked at these last week, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples two by two. And you'll notice that that story that we looked at last week, it finds its completion in verse 30. You'll notice that verse 30 picks up where verse 13 leaves off. There the disciples return and report to Jesus all that they had seen and done and heard. But in between, in between what happens? Well, Mark inserts this story about the death of John the Baptist, and by so doing, Mark is saying to his readers, there's something you need to know. There's something you need to know about going out into the world as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is that exactly? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. Sort of gave it away with the kids. They always get the good stuff early, right? But, uh, but the game plan is for us to, to work through the text together. We'll draw out a couple of applications as we do. And then when we're done, we'll kind of step back and we'll look at the big picture and we'll consider exactly what it is that Mark wants his readers to know. Well, our text begins with these words in verse 14. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Now, we have met a King Herod before. We met him in Matthew chapter 2. He's he's the one who heard about the birth of Jesus from the Magi and then did everything in his power to kill Jesus, even going so far as to have all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years of age put to death. Well, this King Herod of Mark 6 is not the same as that King Herod of, Mark, or of Matthew 2. No, this King Herod, in front of us this morning, is the son of that King Herod. 
This King Herod ruled from the time of his father's death in 4 BC until he was deposed um, in uh, 39 AD. So he ruled for a span of about 43 years. Um, He started ruling shortly after Jesus was born, probably a year or two after Jesus was born, and then he ruled until after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. We actually read about him in Luke's gospel when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate. Anyway, his official title was not king. He liked to refer to himself as king, and Mark here is sort of referring to him as king in jest, I think, almost like King Herod, and the people of his day sort of would have, would have chuckled at that. Um, but he wasn't a king. His official title was Tetrarch, Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And the title Tetrarch literally means ruler of a fourth part, okay, ruler of a fourth part. After Herod the Great's death in 4 BC, the territory of Palestine over which he ruled was divided into four parts, and each of his son was kind of given dominion over one of those four parts, hence the title Tetrarch, ruler of a fourth part. In Matthew 2.22, we are told that Herod Archelaus ruled in the place of his father Herod in Judea. The Herod of Mark 6 is his brother Herod Antipas, and he rules in the place of his father in Galilee and Perea. Perea is the region adjacent to Galilee to the south and east across the Jordan River, if you can think of a, think of a map in your mind or see a map in the back of your Bible. Anyway, now that I've confused you, that's who this Herod is. Um, um, by the way, we actually know of, of four different Herods in the New Testament. So if you, if you read a passage and you hear about Herod, you can't just assume it's all one Herod. There are four different Herods in the New Testament. All are from the same family. Herod's sort of like the name that binds them together. It's like, you know, Ebels or Dick or Coochie or whatever we want to say. Maybe we could think about it that way. But they're different guys, all right? They're different guys. So um, anyway, that's who, that's who this Herod is. Mark says, King Herod heard about this. What is this? Well, it's probably the ministry of Jesus through the, through the 12. Jesus sent the 12 out. They're tearing up the countryside in the name of Jesus. He heard about this. Okay? He heard about this. Now, in verses 14b through 15, Mark sets before us the prevailing opinions of the day regarding who Jesus is. And you'll see there are three of them right there. Some were saying he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others were saying he's Elijah, also would have been raised from the dead. And then others were just going with the more generic, you know, he's, just, he's a prophet of old. He's a prophet like those prophets of old. Okay, these are the three prevailing opinions of the day concerning the identity of Jesus. In verse 16, Mark tells us where Herod came down. This is Herod's own assessment. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Herod says, I'll take that option. That's certainly who this is. Now, I don't know this for sure, but it certainly seems when you read that, that Herod is is a man tormented by a guilty conscience. Doesn't it seem that way? Right? John, the man I beheaded, is raised from the dead, almost like he's come back to haunt me. I'm kind of reminded of, uh, of Lady Macbeth, if you are familiar with that Shakespeare play, who walks around at two in the morning muttering to herself and trying to get that cursed spot of blood off her hand. That's sort of the impression I have of Herod here. That he's, just, he's tormented by a guilty conscience over what he did in regards to John. 
Well, now Mark goes on to recount the story for us, beginning at verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Someone has said that, that, the, uh, that the family affairs in the Herodian line could supply the gist for a long soap opera series, and that is accurate. That is accurate. The first century Jewish historian Josephus provides us with many details, extra-biblical details about relations within the Herodian family. And to say the least, it was a dysfunctional family, and it was a family that was time and again rocked by scandal. What we read here is just a snippet of things that were happening on and on in the Herodian line. Anyway, Herod, he stole his brother's wife, didn't he? He stole his brother Philip's wife, and uh, John the Baptist, bless his heart, John the Baptist called him out for it. He called him out for it. The seventh commandment, forbids adultery. Leviticus 18.16 says, quite plainly, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. Okay, the law of God to Israel could not have been more clear. And John the Baptist says to Herod, Herod, what you've done is wrong. What you've done is unlawful. You are living in sin. He just went right for the jugular. I couldn't help but think in my study this week what what John the Baptist would say to the governor of New York today. I think we'd enjoy watching that. Of course, I think we also have to wonder what he'd say to us today, right? What he'd say about our own lives. You know, one like John who, who called people out for their sins probably wouldn't be looked upon kindly in America today. I, uh, I don't even know if in the church we'd look kindly upon him, right? Sometimes in the church we're even ashamed of people like this. Just keep quiet. Just mind your own business. Don't be a legalist. Jesus loves sinners. You know what Jesus said about John? I told the kids. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. It's one like this, who speaks like this, who confronts these sins. Jesus says, of of men born of women, there is no one greater. Chew on that for a while. So Herod, he locked John up after John denounced his marriage to his brother's wife. And then we see in verses 19 through 20 that a a strange relationship existed between, between Herod and John. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Then look at this. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. The fascinating relationship here, isn't there, between, between Herod and John. Herodias wants John dead, but Herod will have none of it. He, he protects John, and according to the text here, it seems that he's, he's at one and the same time both afraid of John and fascinated by John. R.C. Sproul has often commented on how the, the holiness of God is both terrifying and fascinating 
to the sinner. And that sort of seems to be the thing going on here. John has shown himself to be a holy man. He's shown himself to be a godly man. And Herod is at one and the same time both afraid of him and and drawn to him. It's uh, It's funny to see people's reactions when they find out that, uh, that I'm a pastor. Um, I'll be uh, ice fishing or something, for instance. I'll strike up a conversation with someone. They'll be using a bunch of foul language. They'll be talking real crude. And then eventually they ask what I do. And I say, you know, I'm a pastor. Why else am I fishing on Monday? What do you do? Right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I say, I'm a, I'm a pastor, right? And then you can sort of see them like... <laughs> stagger back, and they're processing everything that they've said to me in the last half hour, and, 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 and you can see them thinking about all they've, all they've said, and, and from that point on, there's a change in their demeanor and in their, in their language, right? That has an interesting effect on people, especially unconverted people, right? Christians themselves aren't taken aback by that, but, but unconverted people who sort of live their life knowing the truth, having the truth deep down within their conscience, but, but deny it in the way they live, it startles them. I think that's kind of what's happening here. Right? Herod, is, Herod is drawn to John. He's scared of John, but he's drawn to John at the same time. And I love that detail at the end of verse 20. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Certainly there's a lesson for us in that detail. And it's simply this. Liking to listen to a preacher is not the same thing as appropriating his message. Right? Liking to listen to a preacher is not the same thing as appropriating his message. Herod liked to listen to John. He found something about it enjoyable. But he didn't take John's message to heart. He didn't repent of his sin. Liking to listen to a preacher is not the same thing as appropriating his message. Sometimes people will say to me, and maybe you don't think this at all, and then just, throw, just disregard it, but sometimes pe- people will say, or people have said to me, Pastor Dirk, you're, you're easy to listen to. And I used to take that as a compliment, right? Oh, good, I want to be easy to listen to, until I realized that easy listening was actually the goal of, of radio stations and not necessarily the goal of preachers. Now, if I am easy to listen to, thanks be to God, but woe to me if I'm content with simply being easy to listen to. And woe to you if you are content with simply finding me easy to listen to. Woe to you if you're, you're content to show up on Sunday morning and say, oh, that was fun, and nothing more. No, each of us, me, the preacher, you, the listener, we should care a lot more about the truth finding its way to our hearts than simply about having our, having our ears tickled on Sunday morning. As James said, right, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Well, the story continues in verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So the who's who of first century Galilee is at this party. You can actually almost see the limos pulling up in your mind, can't you? And people stepping out and the cameras flashing. That's sort of what's going on here. The who's who of first century Galilee are at this birthday party for Herod. The wealthy, the prestigious, the powerful, they're all here. If you got an invite to this party, you are somebody in first century Galilee. Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This isn't Herod's daughter. 
This is Herodias' daughter from her former husband. Josephus, again, that historian, tells us her name was Salome, not Salami, Salome. The Greek indicates that she was a young girl of marriageable age, would put her in her mid-teen, let's say 14 to 16, not old. Mark does not tell us the type of dance she did, but I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure out what kind of dance would please a room full of unregenerate, unbelieving men. Certainly it was sexual and explicit in nature. And we read that Herod was so pleased that he said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And then he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. It's a, it's a figure of speech. It's like saying, I'll give you the moon. But that's what Herod says to her. The girl, she goes out. She inquires of her mother. Right? What should I ask for? And her mother responds, and you get the sense that mom sort of had this all calculated, didn't she? She knew exactly what was going on. She knew how she was going to get her way. She says, the head of John the Baptist. The girl comes back. She makes a request in verse 25, and if you read verse 25, you can almost hear that spoiled bratness dripping off the text, can't you? I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Mom just asked for the head. She says, I want it on a plate. I want his head right now on a plate. And then Mark says in verse 26 and following, the king, Herod, was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. What did Herod do? Well, Herod uh, went against his conscience... That much is sure, Jiminy Cricket would not have been proud. But more than that, Herod chose his reputation over righteousness, didn't he? He chose his reputation over righteousness. Those words are haunting. The king was greatly distressed. He knew it was wrong. He knew knew the right way to move forward. The honorable way to move forward. But because of his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. He didn't want to go back on his oath. He chose his reputation over righteousness. Friends, how often don't we do the same? Boys and girls, how often, how often haven't you done the same at school? Maybe you, you use words you shouldn't, or you tell lies, or you run others down so that you look good in the eyes of your peers. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt. We've done it, right? We've chose our reputation over righteousness. But boys and girls, it's not just you. It's mom and dad and grandma and grandpa too, right? We, we choose our reputation over righteousness and maybe how we spend our money. We, we choose our reputation over righteousness and how we speak about others. We choose our reputation over righteousness often in whom we choose to have fellowship with after church. Friends, we do the same. Don't you hate it when you see yourself in the bad guys of the Bible? It happens a lot, if we're honest. 
This is exactly who we are apart from the grace of God. It's who we are by nature. And it's this nature, this Herod-like nature in each of us that we must repent of and war against every day of our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's, that's the story. Let's take a step back now. What is it that Mark wants his readers to know? Why does he insert this story of John's death into the middle of the story of the twelve being sent out by Jesus. Well, it seems to me that what, what Mark wants us to understand, what he wants us to get, what he wants us to know, is that serving Christ in this world is not peaches and ice cream. It's not success upon success upon success, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. No, it's hard. It's difficult. It's dangerous. There will be a cost, and it is very possible, very possible, that it will cost you nothing less than your life. It's interesting to me that of the 12 whom Jesus sends out in the previous passage, history tells us that 10 of them suffer the same end as John the Baptist. Ten of them are martyred. Of the two that aren't, one of them is Judas. We know his story. He doesn't count. The other is John. John who wrote the book of John and the book of Revelation. And although John wasn't put to death, he was, you might remember, exiled to the island of Patmos. Okay, not not one of these guys floated off to glory on flowery beds of ease. For each of them, there was a significant cost. And we need to know, it's no different for us. There is a cost in being sent out by our Lord Jesus Christ into this world. Might cost us comfort. I shouldn't even say might, it will. Might cost us our reputation. Might cost us money. It might cost us time. It might cost us... Traditions, it might cost us things familiar. It might cost us our very lives. But there will be a cost. There will be. And as a sent people, we established this last week, we are a sent people. But as a sent people, we need to know this. We need to know what we're getting into as we head out into the world as Christ's ambassadors. Because sometimes we go out and we think it's all going to be just lovely and wonderful and we're going to be famous and popular and rich and wealthy and all this stuff. And then we run into some opposition and we stop. Huh, it's not quite how we thought. We stop and we go our own way. Now, I wish this were not so. I wish this were not the case. I wish this was not what I had to tell you this morning. But I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, Okay. I'm not going to tell you that if you you serve Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and popular, because it's very possible. It's very possible that if you serve Jesus faithfully, you will die alone in prison at the behest of a conniving harlot and her spoiled daughter and a king who's more concerned about his reputation than righteousness, and you end up being buried quietly without your head. Bill Wallace was a medical missionary to China. Um, from the late 1930s until the time of his death in 1950. It was a dangerous time to be in China during World War II. 
Wallace even left for a season during the war, but he, but he came back already while the war was still going because God had just given him a burden for the people there in China. In the year 1950, communist activity in China was, was on the increase, and many missionaries were told to get out, get out. It's not a good place to be, not a safe place to be, get out. Many were evacuated. Bill Wallace chose to stay. He chose to stay. On December 19, 1950, Chinese communists came into the hospital. They accused Wallace of being a spy. They framed him by placing a handgun in his office. And then they publicly sought to discredit him before the Chinese people to whom he ministered. They just ran down his reputation. He's a spy. He's a liar. You know, just, just ran him down. He was thrown in prison on false charges of espionage. He was starved. He was tortured. He was falsely accused. The Chinese tried to brainwash him into giving a false confession, but they could not, and they got mad. And one night, the guards came in, and they began jabbing him with poles through the bars of his cell in an effort to just, to just make him break, but they went too far. And maybe we could say, by God's mercy, he died. One of those poles did him in. The next morning, the guards declared to everyone in prison and to everyone in the community that Bill Wallace hung himself. He hung himself. He took his own life. A cheap wooden coffin was brought in. His body was placed in it. It was nailed shut. He was buried in an unmarked grave all alone in China. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Hardly a script any one of us would write for one who went out in the faithful service of God. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we go across the world? Why do we go across the country? Why do we go across the state? Why do we go across the street in Jesus' name if we're promised nothing from this world in return? Well, maybe you don't do it. That's very possible, and then you can just end there, and you can deal with that yourself. But why do we do it? Well, two reasons come quickly to mind. The first reason we do it is because our king calls us to. And if your king calls you to do something, you do it. But more than that, not only does our king call us to, he calls us to as one who himself knows the cost of obedience and faithfulness to God. It's interesting to note the parallels between the death of John and the death of Jesus. For instance, Herod's respect for John, it parallels Pilate's respect for Jesus. Herodias' hatred for John and scheming for his death parallels the hatred and the scheming of the Jewish leaders towards Jesus. Herod's yielding to the pressure of his guests parallels Pilate's yielding to the pressure of the people. And that note at the very end about John's disciples taking his body and laying it in a tomb reminds us of the actions of Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body and who laid it in a tomb. Currently reading a book on the Korean War, and over and over again the author notes how easy it was for General Douglas MacArthur to send his troops into battle and many of them to their death from the comforts of his office in Tokyo. He wasn't there. He sent them as one who didn't know and who wouldn't know. People of God, that's not the case with our captain, right? It's not the case with our king. God the Father sent and he went even at great cost to himself. 
And because he went, we, we receive salvation. Because he went, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life as we repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus. And that leads to our second reason. It's that promise of eternal life. It's that hope of heaven that our Lord Jesus has secured for all who believe through his death and resurrection. I love the point J.C. Ryle makes about our passage this morning. Just listen to what he says. Speaking about the, the text that we've read together. Histories like these are meant to remind us that the true Christian's best things are yet to come. His rest, his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, we must walk by faith and not by sight. And if we look for the praise of men, we will be disappointed. Here in this life, we must sow, labor, and fight and endure persecution. If we expect a great earthly reward, we expect what we will not find. But this life is not all. There is to be a day of retribution. There's a glorious harvest yet to come. Heaven will make amends. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the glorious things that God has laid up for those who love him. We don't think that way enough, do we? I sure don't. We are too much temporal. We are too much about the here and now. What will this cost me now? How will this action affect my life now? What will this person think of me now? We think that way too much. Then we feel sorry for those like John the Baptist or Bill Wallace or others who've lost their lives prematurely for the cause of Christ. But friends, the fact is, right now counts forever. And we need to think in such terms. We need to learn to condition ourselves to live for eternity and to seek the approval of God and to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. You know, Bill Wallace's grave did not remain unmarked. You know, some of his friends, some of his friends at great danger to themselves collected funds for a, for a marker and they built a small monument and placed the marker over it where his body lay. On that monument are seven words. Seven words that were important to Bill. Those seven words are these. For me, to live is Christ. For me, to live is Christ. That, of course, is the first half of Philippians 1.21. I think many of you probably know the second half of Philippians 1.21. And to die is gain. And to die is gain. If we're going to go out into this world as Christ's ambassadors, if we're going to truly serve him no matter the cost, we need to believe that. That to die is gain. My prayer for us this morning that God might help us, each and every one of us, myself included, who very much needs help in this regard, live for the life to come. My prayer is that he'll help us speak and act and live as people who truly understand that right now counts forever. And that the best things the faithful will receive are on the other side of the grave. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... We love this world. 
And we confess this morning that we have often shrunk from serving you faithfully in it because we weren't willing to pay the cost. Forgive us for our sins and help us to be your faithful ambassadors in this world. Thank you so much for not shrinking from the cost of our redemption even when it cost you a cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing together, O Church Arise. I ask you to stand and join with the praise team in singing.
receive the parting blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. Thank you.